0: and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Let's pray together. Our Father, before Your Word today, we ask that You would be our teacher, that You would illumine Your Word to our hearts, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from Your Word, because we know that the entrance of Your Word gives light. And so we ask that You would do this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week I left you with a little bit of a homework assignment and that was to spend a little bit of time thinking and meditating on verses 15 through 18. This passage where Paul talks about some who were preaching Christ from envy and strife, from selfish ambition, hoping to cause him distress in his imprisonment. And my question was this, what was it that they were hoping to do to cause Paul distress? Why did they think Paul would be distressed or afflicted in his imprisonment as a result of them preaching the gospel? What type of distress were they hoping to cause Paul, and why were they hoping to cause Paul that distress? Now, last week we had to sort of stop in the middle of a a passage. With really, the, this whole passage, verses 12 through 26, is all one chunk, and we had to stop sort of in the middle of a of a main thought. And we we did that for this reason, because when on Sunday mornings, my job is to teach and to preach, and your part is to sit and listen. Now, sometimes you get through with your part before I get through with my part. In which case, it behooves us, I love that word, it behooves us to simply find a place to take a break and stop and pick it up the next Lord's Day. So that's what we did last week. Verses 12 through 26 is all one section. The key verse, really the heart of the whole thing is verse 21. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now everything from verses 12 through 20 explains what it means, what living Christ means as regards to keeping the gospel as the central focus of everything in life. Verse 22 through 26 shows us what living Christ means as pertains to serving others in the gospel. And at the heart of all of that is living Christ. And I don't want you to lose the big picture idea, which is verse 21. This whole passage is about what it means to live Christ. Because living Christ is really the central idea of not only this passage, but also the whole book. So last week we looked at verses 12 through 14. And we saw how the gospel is the priority for this man, Paul. Sitting in prison, he's really not concerned about his own circumstances. All he is really concerned with is, how does what happens to me affect the gospel? And so writing to the Philippians, he wants to set them at ease, and so he simply says, look, what has happened to me has actually been for the progress of the gospel, because I'm able to witness to the Praetorian Guard, and the news of my imprisonment in the cause of Christ is spread throughout all of those soldiers, And not only that, but looking at my imprisonment, there are brethren in the city of Rome who have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. They were emboldened to go out and do the work of the Gospel, proclaiming the Gospel and preaching and teaching. It sort of lit a fire under them. So Paul says, it's actually been a good thing, what has happened to me. Now in verses 15-18, through Paul describes two groups of people among those brethren who spoke the Word of God without fear or more courageously. Two groups. We call them selfish and selfless servants. The selfish servants and the selfless servants. Those who are thinking of themselves and those who are thinking of others, namely Paul. Now there are three distinctions, three sort of contrasts between the selfish and the selfless in this passage. And I hope that in going through all of this, I don't get selfless and selfish confused. If you hear me say something that doesn't sound quite right and you think, hold on, I think that was the selfish, not the selfless. Just cut me a little bit of grace. I'm finally, um, just out of the habit of not turning to the book of Acts when we open here. So, selfish and selfish servants, three things that sort of differentiate those, tr- those two groups. Paul, first of all, let me give you the three things and we're going to ta- I'm going to show you them in the text and then we'll take a second and look at each one of these individually. The three things are this. Paul shows us that they have different attitudes, different attitudes. One, envy and strife. One group, goodwill. Second, they had different motives. Those who were preaching from goodwill had the motive of love. Those who were preaching from envy and strife had the motive of selfish ambition. And then third, and I I struggled all week with what word to even put on this. I don't even know if this is the right word, so maybe you can come up with something else. But they had different aims or different mentalities, I guess. You'll notice in the text that there's two words used. Those who are preaching from goodwill and love knowing, Paul says, that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The key word is knowing. And then look at the other group. They preached out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So back and forth, Paul goes in sort of a a running commentary on these two groups. He gives us a little detail about the bad guys, a little detail about the good guys, and then back and forth he goes, sort of contrasting them. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at these two groups, the selfish and the selfless, and we're going to look at the three differences between those groups. And then we're going to pull out some applications and some observations from it. So first of all, they had different attitudes. different attitudes. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. So you have two different groups. The selfish are preaching Christ from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. What is envy and strife? You know what envy is? Envy, the word that Paul uses here that's translated envy in your New Testament, means a desire that somebody else would not have something or have what they have in a lesser degree. Now when I say the word envy, you are probably thinking in your mind something akin to jealousy. Jealousy is the desire to have what somebody else has for myself. Envy is a little bit different. Envy is the desire that somebody else would not have what they have. I can be envious even if I have what somebody else has, but I want them to have what they have to a lesser degree or to not have what they have. It's not necessarily that I want it for myself. It's just that I don't want them to have what they have. That's envy. Envy is looking at somebody else, and you've probably seen this in your own heart. You see God bless somebody's business, somebody's finances. They, they get a new job or they get a promotion or they get a raise, and you look at it and you say to yourself, They don't deserve that. They don't have that coming. That's too nice of a thing for them to have. What makes them think that they deserve that? They shouldn't have it. And if you just step back for a second and looked at your own situation, you'd probably find that God has blessed you with the same thing to an even greater degree. But the issue is not that you want what they have for yourself. The issue is that you don't want them to have what they have. And you might even be sitting on three or four of those things. You just don't want them to have it. That's envy. It's not that you don't have it. you might have it. You just don't want them to have it. And so you say to yourself, they don't deserve that. They don't have that coming. you have an envious heart? Let me give you a test. Here's a real good test. Ask yourself this. Am I able to rejoice with those who rejoice? When God blesses somebody with something, am I able to, with sincerity, without wax say, praise the Lord, that is great. Even though you've got it, or even though you might want it, you're simply able to enter into their rejoicing and to rejoice with them. And you don't want what they have, and you're glad that they have it. The envious heart is not able to rejoice. It just says, hmm, good. Good for them. And in your heart, you're thinking to yourself, they don't deserve that. They didn't earn that. What right do they have to that? That's too nice for them. Sit back and look at yourself and you find out, oh, I'm sitting on a pile of these things and God has blessed me with all of that, but in my heart, I don't want them to have it. That's envy. Envy is an insidious, one of the most hideous of evils and I'll tell you why. Because envy causes you and I to usurp the throne of God and say, look, I will be a determiner of who gets what divine blessing. I will determine what is right to give to this individual or to that individual. And it wants to usurp that authority of divine blessing from God and take it for ourself. As if God is too incompetent to determine who to bless with what. You can be envious of somebody's wife, somebody's husband, somebody's job, somebody's land, somebody's possessions, somebody's position, somebody's reputation, somebody's authority, somebody's ministry, somebody's spiritual gift, somebody's dog. You can be envious of all of those things. Envy is just that hard attitude that says, I don't want them to have it. And it's coupled with strife. Do you notice that? Envy is in Titus chapter 3. It's used as describe those the un, unregenerate life that we once had. We once lived our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It's a characteristic of an unbeliever, envy. It's a deed of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And in both of those passages, Titus chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5, envy and strife occur together in the same context. Do you know Why? because they go together so much. Show me some place where there is strife, and I will almost bet you that some form of envy is at the heart of all of that strife. You know why they go together? Because envy in the heart says, He doesn't deserve that. He doesn't need that. That's too nice for Him. And so in your heart, you want to take it from Him. And that creates strife or rivalry, as actually how the NIV translates it. Rivalry and strife and contention and enmity in the relationship. And they always go together. If you have kids, you've seen this, haven't you? One kid is sitting in the living room playing with his toys. And he's got four little toy cars. And there's one toy car that's all the way on the other side of the room, up against the wall, not being played with. Nobody has touched it. Nobody even notices it is on the map. Until the little brother comes in and walks over to the one toy car that's on the floor that is not being played with, would never be played with if little brother didn't walk into the room. He grabs that car, and now the boy who has four cars wants what? The one car. Why? Because he doesn't have any toy cars? No, because he doesn't want him to have the toy car. And had little brother not walked into the room, big brother would have never even seen that car. But once he gets the car, big brother wants to divest little brother of the blessing of that one car, even though he's sitting on four of his own. You ever seen that with your kids? So then what happens? He moves in. I have my kids up here looking at each other. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So what happens? Big brother moves in to divest little brother of his blessing because he has a heart of envy and strife ensues. Have you seen it? You've seen it in your home. Because envy is present in the human heart from conception. And at the earliest opportunity, it will manifest itself, and you never grow out of it. You never grow out of it. Watch your heart. You see God bless somebody, and you watch the manifestation of envy in your own heart, and you'll be disgusted. And then you just have to sit back and ask yourself, who made me the arbiter of divine blessing? Who put me on the throne of heaven to determine what is right and what is not right in all of this? That's envy and strife. Now, I give you a description of those two words, and I illustrate it for this reason. I asked you last week, what were they hoping to do to cause Paul distress? The words that Paul is using to describe their attitudes and their motives gives us some indication as to what's going on, and I'm going to to give that to you in a bit. The second group, the selfless servants, they were preaching Christ out of goodwill. The word usually in the New Testament is used to describe God's goodwill toward men. That is divine favor upon something. It seems a bit of a stretch to sort of put that meaning into this context. It seems that since one was motivated by feelings of strife and envy toward Paul, the other is actually motivated by a feeling of goodwill toward Paul. There is a, a desire to bless Paul, a desire to help Paul, a desire to come alongside of Paul, That is the feelings of the one. It is a feeling of goodwill toward Paul himself. The others have a feeling or an attitude of envy and strife. There was something that Paul had that they didn't want him to have. They may have had it themselves, but they didn't want Paul to have it. And then there is something that they are doing that they are hoping, they're motivated by this selfish ambition. So we have different attitudes, second, different motives. Look at verse 16. The latter, that is those who are preaching out of goodwill, the latter do it out of love. That's the motive. Knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So those who have selfish motives, of, of, sorry, selfish, the selfish servants who had feelings of envy and strife are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition the latter, those who had goodwill toward Paul, were preaching out of love. Now love doesn't seek its own. Love is always interested in the benefit and the blessing and the goodwill of the other individual. Paul's talked a lot about love in this epistle already, hasn't he? Verses 7 and 8, Paul described his own love for them. I have you in my heart, since in my, con- my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're partakers of grace with me. I pray that your own love may abound still more and more in all real knowledge and discernment That's the love that Paul has for them and the love that he wants them to have for each other. And here we see that love is actually a a motive for pure Christian service. They are motivated and they are preaching Christ with a motive of love. The second group was not motivated by love. Love is selfless. Love gives of itself. Love doesn't care if it gets anything in return. It's always motivated by the good of the other individual. But this group, the second group, the selfish servants, they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. And the word was actually used before New Testament times, I think it was Aristotle who used it, was used of electioneering. Somebody who was trying to acquire through sort of questionable methods a political office or some office of power. They wanted to acquire something for themselves, sort of a, an electioneering type of an idea. That's, that's what the word selfish ambition means. They were wanting something for themselves or to get something out of preaching Christ for themselves. What are they hoping to acquire? So there's something that Paul has that they don't want him to have and there's something that they don't have that they're trying to acquire for themselves through preaching Christ. And so they're doing the proclamation of the Gospel with selfish motives, impure motives. Selfish ambition. Now friends, I wish I I wish I wish could not say this But it is sick and vexing to me that I can say this, and it is this. You and I would be utterly stunned if we were able to find out how many pulpits in this country, even today and right now, are filled with men who are motivated by selfish ambition. They like the lights. They like the attention. They like hearing their own voice. They like everybody looking at them. They like everybody looking up to them, everybody respecting them. It's all about them. And we live in a media-driven, image-driven, entertainment-soaked, narcissistic, self-centered, me-theology or meology based church where the church, because it does what it does the way that it does, actually attracts to itself like a flame does moths, men and women who are motivated by selfish ambition. It's, this is, has to be the worst that it's ever been. People who like the position. Now, can I name names? I don't know who they are. I don't. I have suspicions, but I don't know. I just know that it's a horrible plague in our day in churches. Men who like the position, they like the praise of men rather than the praise of God. In Paul's day, it was the same thing. They were preaching the gospel. And their motives were impure. They were trying to acquire something out of their ministry for themselves, building their own kingdoms. They had different attitudes, different motives. The third distinction between these two groups is that they had different aims. Like I said, that's the word. I don't know if aim is the right word. You can write it down if you're a note taker. In a couple months you're not going to have any idea what I was talking about when you wrote that down. But notice the distinction between the two words. Some were knowing, knowing that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel, and others were thinking, supposing, or imagining that they were able to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. So they have a different aim. They have a different end game or mindset in all of this, and it's brought out by the distinction between those two words, knowing and thinking. One group, that is those who were preaching out of goodwill, motivated by love, one group had a right assessment, a right knowledge of Paul, his ministry, what God was doing through his imprisonment, what the purpose and the plan of God was in keeping Paul in Rome for two years. They were able to look at Paul's imprisonment and say, he's been here for two years, God has taken him out of circulation, and we understand what God is doing in this, that this is for the progress, the confirmation, and the defense of the Gospel. And so they knew that Paul had been appointed for this, that he was not a victim of his circumstances. He was not an unfortunate man caught in a whirlwind. It was not the hostile Jews or Caesar or the Praetorian guard that kept Paul where he was at. This was by the hand and the appointment of God. And that God in His sovereignty and God in His providence and God in His grace and His master plan put Paul right there. And some knew he's appointed for this. Now others thought that in the midst of all of this, that Paul had an ego that could be bruised. And so they thought, well, in preaching the gospel, we're going to actually cause Paul some distress. Some distress. They wrongly assumed that if they were able to promote the gospel without Paul, it would hurt Paul's feelings. And Paul says they've missed it entirely. What they didn't take into account is that Paul's interest was the proclamation of the gospel. They thought in proclaiming the gospel, they were hurting him And in proclaiming the gospel, they were actually advancing his interests. They were actually advancing his cause. They were actually helping Paul out. He says, they missed the boat entirely. They think they're hurting me. They're helping me. Friends, this is an important point and a key one. And listen to this, because this is key. If your life is not wrapped up in the gospel and advancement of the gospel and sound doctrine and sound theology and love for God and a commitment to the cause of Christ, if your life isn't wrapped up in that, if it's all wrapped up in me and what I can get out of it and what I can do and my ego and my position and my reputation and all of that, if your life is all wrapped up in those things, then it's going to be easy to cause you distress. Because all somebody has to come in is does come in and attack you, and you're going to take it personally. But Paul could honestly say, look, I'm dead. I died in Christ. To Paul, there was no Paul. Paul is dead. And it's no longer him who lives, but Christ lives in him. In the life which he now lived in the flesh, he lived by faith in the Son of God. So Paul could say, you could say all you want about me, you could do anything you want to me, but Paul died. And my interest is wrapped up in the interest of the gospel. And you can preach the gospel, think you're hurting me, but I got no ego to defend. So preach away. It actually helps me out. What a magnanimous individual was Paul, doesn't it not? They had different attitudes, different motives, and a different mindset. But now we come back to our original question. What type of distress were they hoping to cause Paul in the midst of his imprisonment? What type of affliction did they hope to to get at Paul in the midst of all of this? Now, I want you to notice right away that Paul's a bit miserly with the details, is he not? Do you notice that? It doesn't tell us exactly what it is. And, and, And we're begging the text. Paul, What what in the world were they hoping to do to you by preaching the gospel? How is it that they thought that would harm you? And so we're left to deduce from the meaning of these words and the way sort of Paul roundabout describes it without really talking about it. We're left to deduce, and we can't do this with certainty, what it was that they were hoping to do to Paul. But he's a little miserly on the details. doesn't really tell us what it is. I can't be dogmatic. We're not going to start a new denomination over this. But let me just say, we can sort of put ourselves in the historical context and I can offer, I think, a good solid suggestion as to what they were aiming at in doing this. But... Paul doesn't focus on what type of distress they were hoping to cause him. And you know why? If he spent five or six verses describing this distress, describing what they were trying to do to him in more specific terms, you and I would read that and we would focus on what? The distress. We would focus on these guys and what they were doing, how they were doing it, and we would miss the big picture. What's the big picture? It is the greater progress of the Gospel. You see, the type of distress means as much to Paul as his circumstances do. It's nothing. The key issue is what is happening with the gospel. That's why he's miserly with the details. So what do we think it is? Well, he uses the term envy and he uses the term selfish ambition. Now, envy has to do with desiring that somebody who has something doesn't have it. And selfish ambition has to do with having taking something that I don't have and wanting to acquire something for myself. So I think that the most satisfactory way of answering this question of what kind of distress were they hoping to cause Paul is this. I think this was an issue of personal rivalry personal rivalry between Paul and those who were preaching Christ with selfish motives and impure motives. They had something to gain and they were trying to take something from Paul and gain it for themselves. It was personal rivalry. Now, how would this work? Well, let me describe to you a historical situation I don't think is too far removed from what actually happened. Somebody planted the church in Rome. They came to the city of Rome. It's a pagan neighborhood. They established a beachhead for the gospel in the city of Rome, one of the most pagan cities in all of the empire. And they worked hard and they labored hard. And there were probably people who gave their lives in service and preaching and teaching to establish the church there. And it was a solid church. It was a a well-run church. It was an established church. And then they get a letter in the mail from Paul. And they crack it open and they read chapter 1. And Paul says, I'm coming to Rome. And I'm coming to Rome because I'm anxious to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. So that I may have some fruit among you as I do among the rest of the Gentiles. What? And then for 16 chapters, he lays out his Gospel and teaches them this, this, this. This is what I'm preaching. This is what you need to know. And they get to the end and Paul says, I'm going to come and visit you and I'm stopping in to visit you because I'm on my way to Rome and I'm hoping that you're going to support my ministry in Rome. And I would like you to gather up some money and and sort of send me out and I want to use Rome as a staging ground for evangelizing all the way to Spain. And you can just imagine that there was somebody sitting in the church, probably an elder or a leader who read this and thought to themselves... Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He didn't start this church. He has no calling here. And he thinks he's going to come here and he's going to horn in on our show and we're just going to turn over a bunch of funds and send him off to Spain to evangelize, to promote his own reputation and his own ministry. Who does this guy think he is telling us what the Gospel is and teaching us all of these difficult doctrines and telling us what to believe about this and what to believe about that? And a couple of years go by, and lo and behold, he shows up in the city of Rome. And some people from the congregation love him so much, they travel two days out to a city outside of Rome to meet him there. You remember that from Acts 28? They went out to meet him outside the city of Rome and travel back with him. Paul doesn't deserve that kind of recognition and respect and love. He didn't plant this church. He didn't need these people, Lord. He didn't baptize any of these people. What are they doing going out to see him? He doesn't deserve that. He doesn't need that. These people shouldn't be called giving Paul that kind of respect and that kind of honor, do you see the envy? see the envy coming out? And then they would say, he's in prison. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach the gospel to spite him. I'm going to show him we don't need his ministry here in this city to grow the church. I'm going to show him we don't need his preaching here in the church. And he's chained to a Roman guard. He can't go out and do it. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to parade it in front of him. I'm going to preach the gospel out in the street corner on the corner of Nero and First Avenue where he's stationed in his own little rented apartment. I'm going to do some open air preaching so that he can hear me preach and he'll sit in there and wish that he could be out doing what I'm out there doing. I'll show him and then when the numbers come in, and it shows that Paul only led 100 people to the Lord in the last year, and I led 250 people to the Lord in the last year, then it will show to everybody who the real preacher is that we don't need Paul. There's the strife. You say, do do Christians really do that? No, we don't do that, do we? No, you can't even see your own heart in that scenario, can you? Not at all. We don't have that going on in churches today, do we? Do we really kick people when they're down? Do Christians really kick their own when they're down? Earlier, I gave you a report about a brother who's having some difficulty and he's fallen. And I asked you what was going through your mind. You're saying to yourself, Phew, never happened to me. Yeah, serves him right. Hey, it was only a matter of time before that would happen. I knew it would get found out. Yeah, I knew it. Couldn't wait for that to happen. Maybe in our hearts we're not all that far from those who kicked Paul when he was down, huh? The envy and the strife. Christians really do that? Man, it's more its more prevalent than you might even think. A selfish ambition. Envy. They had reputations they wanted to acquire. Power they wanted to acquire. Status they wanted to acquire. Paul got all this recognition, this fame. He was well-known and renowned, and he doesn't deserve that. Not in the city of Rome. This is our church. What are our people doing going to his Bible study on Saturday nights when we led them to the Lord and we baptized them and they're over in his rented quarters and he's teaching them? I've been their pastor for five years. Those people have no business going over there. I've been their Sunday school teacher for seven years. Those people, I led them to the Lord. What are they doing listening to Paul and they're off doing that instead of over here at my, at my Bible study? Now, Christians, we don't envy like that, do we? We don't have that kind of strife, do we? You laugh and you chuckle and you know why? Because we see ourselves right there in the city of Rome. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that is the depth of our own depravity. That's the depth of our own wickedness and our own self-serving ambition. You know what's interesting in all this? What's interesting to me in all of this is that the people who are doing this are believers. Do you notice that in the text? Verse 14, "...the brethren..." have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. And it's the brethren, some of the brethren. These aren't false teachers. These aren't hostile Jews. These aren't unbelievers. These aren't wolves in sheep's clothing. These aren't Judaizers. These aren't his enemies. These are Christians. These are brethren who are teaching this way and preaching from this motive. And they're looking at Paul and they're taking every opportunity to take a pot shot at Paul. And what is Paul's response? As long as Christ is being preached, I rejoice. You say, but Paul, they're stabbing you in the back and taking pot shots at you. I rejoice. And notice in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. If this continues, I'm going to keep rejoicing in it. I'm going to determine to rejoice in these circumstances. And even though they're taking shots at me and they're doing this from impure motives, I'm going to continue to rejoice in it. And these are brethren who are doing it. These are Christians who are doing this. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't poke fun at their... At their method. Do you notice that? They're preaching. They're doing exactly what Paul would do. And he doesn't he doesn't take issue with their message. Notice that. It is the Gospel that they are preaching. It's the right message. It's the right Jesus. They've got the right information. On the outside, everything is as it should be. It's Christians doing the right thing with the right message. The only thing that Paul points at is their motive. And he says, their motive is impure. And he says, in that I rejoice as long as the message is going forward. I don't mind what the motive is. That's not for me to end up critiquing or analyzing. And I sometimes ask myself, how does Paul judge their motive? You ever wonder that? How does he judge their motive? Are we not supposed to judge people's motives? We're not supposed to judge people's motives. What is the Apostle Paul doing identifying what their motive is? He can't see their heart, can he? Do you think it might be possible? that some of them actually came into his rented quarters and they said, you know, Paul, I want you to know something. We're offended by the fact that you're here. And as long as you're here, we're going to make every minute that you're here as miserable as we can make it. Have a great day in the Lord. And then walk out. Is it possible that somebody did that? You say Christians would never do that, would they? Oh yeah, Christians who are walking in the flesh would do exactly that. Maybe Paul didn't have to judge their motives. Maybe he knew because they told him why they were doing what they were doing. They had the right message. just wrong motives. Believers. If you've been in this church for a while, you probably have noticed that there's a lot of things that as a church we stand against. Do you notice that? Quite a few things. You say, sometimes I wonder what you're for. Well, we're for all kinds of things. We're against a few things too. We stand against, for instance, um, working with... People who disagree with us on fundamental issues like Catholics and Methodists and Episcopalians and Presbyterians, most of them, a whole host of them. We stand against the emergent church movement. We stand against postmodernism. We stand against the seeker-sensitive, seeker-centered meology of the modern church, which is all about marketing and church growth and all that. We stand against it. Now, maybe you kind of look at it and you say, you know what? Why don't you as a leadership, Dave and Jess and Jim, why don't you guys adopt a magnanimous attitude like the Apostle Paul? I mean, he was just willing to let it go. Why can't you do the same thing? How come you have to oppose all these different groups? You know why? It has nothing to do with motive whatsoever. It has everything to do with the message. The problem is the message is wrong. They have the right message, the wrong motives. Listen, friends, you can preach heresy with pure motives. You can preach heresy with pure motives. You can make a train wreck of a gospel and a dog's breakfast out of truth and preach it with the purest, highest, noblest motives that you can imagine. At the same time, you can take the right message and have the most base, self-serving motives. And Paul says, the message is there. God's blessing the message. I don't care about that as long as the message is going forward. Some are doing it out of selfish motives. I don't care about that. My only concern is that the right message is being promoted. And you and I can do that same thing. We can rejoice when the message goes forward, but when people alter the message, then we contend. You understand the difference between those two? Third observation, just kind of an application that I want you to notice here. And with this, I'll close. Do you notice that God was using these ignoble men? Do you notice that? To advance the gospel? How could he use somebody whose motives were just at the basement level of all motives? I mean, these are the most self serving, selfish. And selfishly ambitious people that you can imagine, they want to cause the apostle Paul harm. I can't even imagine that mindset, can you? The beloved apostle Paul and you doing what you do to cause him harm. That's their motive. How could God use such men as that to promote the progress of the gospel? You know how God does it? Friends, God does it today too. I hear people getting saved in churches through ministries that I'm like, you got saved there? You came to know Christ there? Are you kidding me? From that guy? From that woman? How, how could that happen? You know why it is? It's because God honors His message. Even though He may not honor the messenger. He may not bless and He may not honor the messenger. But the message has a power in and of itself. We're not required to gussy it up to dress it up, to make it fancy, to make it relevant, to give it power, to breathe life into it. It has a life and a power and a beauty all of its own. And when it is given accurately and it is given for whatever the motive is, God in His sovereignty can say, I will take that truth and use it to save so and so. Why? Because it's the truth that saves, not the person who gives the truth. I think it was John Eady who said, the virtue of the Gospel lies in the Gospel, not in the gospeler." It lies in the exposition, not in the expositor. So the power rests in the message, not in the messenger. And God can take the message and use the message without ever blessing the messenger. Case in point, Jonah. Right? Jonah. Did Jonah have the right message? Oh, spot on. Did he have the right motives? Not for the whole book. But God used... The message to bring repentance and salvation and grace to people, even though the messenger was all messed up. Now, am I suggesting that you and I can make a train wreck of our hearts and our motives and our lives and say, well, as long as we got the message right, I don't need to have anything else right. I don't need to have right motives. don't need to have right conduct or behavior. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am suggesting is this. Thank God that He uses the message in spite of the messenger. But you and I would be far better served to make sure that we not only have the message right, but that we analyze our motives and examine our own heart. Friends, my heart is desperately wicked above all things. Desperately wicked. I have a suspicion that you're no better. But my heart is desperately wicked. And sometimes I can do something and I can analyze my motives in it. And say, this is pure before the Lord. And then I get on the other side of doing it. Bing, and the light goes on. I realize I did that for all the wrong reasons. As pure as I hope the motive to be, we all wrestle with it. And we all have to analyze our hearts and judge them and drag our motives out into the light of truth and examine them before God. And by the grace of God, say, why am I doing this? Is this for my own advancement? Am I trying to promote my own agenda? Do I do this so people will look at me? Am I doing this because the lights are shining on me? Am I doing this because I want people to think that on the outside I'm really good and that I'm super spiritual and I got my house in order? What kind of a facade? What kind of an agenda? What kind of a little mini kingdom am I trying to build in this? Got to analyze our motives. And watch your heart for envy, selfish ambition, and strife. Guard your heart. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that even by your grace, you use us in spite of ourselves. And Father, our hearts are desperately wicked. We are chained to this body of death and we always will be until you take us home. We only ask God that by your grace, you would continue to sanctify us, purge us and remove from us every prideful way, every self-seeking agenda, ambition and motive and glorify yourself through your truth that we might gain the reward, that we might honor and glorify you, that we might love you and express our love to you with the purest of hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.